0: <laughs> Welcome to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. Alston and Julius Ramsey are two brothers and a writer director duo. The Ramsey Brothers made their debut with Midnighters, a high-octane indie thriller released by IFC Midnight in 2017. Their most recent feature is The Current Occupant, which is the latest entry in Blumhouse's Into the Dark series on Hulu. For the uninitiated, Into the Dark is a Black Mirror-like series of self-contained feature-length horror movies produced by Blumhouse, where each episode thematically represents a different holiday. The Current Occupant was themed around Independence Day and tells the story of a man to an insane asylum who believes himself to be the President of the United States. The Current Occupant is a fascinating and highly entertaining institutional horror thriller and is available on Hulu today. In addition to their feature films, the Ramseys have a varied and fascinating background. Alston was a former speechwriter for multiple prominent political figures like Secretary of Defense Robert Gates, General David Petraeus, and Secretary of Homeland Security Jay Johnson, while Julius edited for multiple TV shows including Battlestar Galactica and has directed for Blumhouse's The Purge TV series and directed multiple episodes of The Walking Dead. The Ramseys were a whole bunch of fun to talk to, and their latest feature, the current Occupant is now streaming on Hulu. Now, for your listening pleasure, here are Alston and Julius Ramsey. At what point did you know you had a political horror movie in you?
1: Uh, since Donald Trump got elected. Um, <laughs> no, I, I mean, I think it was a, a confluence of events. You know, I'm I'm coming from the right, this is Alston, um, I'm coming from the writing side and Jude's coming from The directing side, like you said, as a speechwriter. So I think we, you know, our first movie was not political, but we were really trying to find that film that was going to be a nexus of our skill sets um, Mm -hmm. because he's coming from genre and has worked on awesome shows like Walking Dead and Alias and Battlestar Galactica. And I'm coming from the writing background and politics in particular. And so it's really trying to find like, what's that sweet spot on where those two meet? So you know, we had been toying with ideas on and off for, what, two, three years probably in the
2: realm. Yeah, and Alston, you know, his experience in politics is, you know, it's it's much, much, much lengthier than mine. I mean, I was an intern in college and that was it, whereas Alston worked at a very high level for um, four or five years okay, professionally.
0: So during that time period, Alston, were there yeah. things that you had seen or experienced or any like real horrors of politics? I'm sure you have to tread carefully when, when answering this question, but um, was there, were there uh-huh. any particular instances where you witnessed things that were, shall we say, horror-centric, that <laughs> that was something worthy of writing a horror movie um, about?
1: I mean, I think that there's a lot you see that is inspirational. Um, So I worked in the Defense Department during um, really the height of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. And, you know, it's a giant bureaucracy, um, which operates the way that institutions and bureaucracies do that are kind of about crushing individuality, which, you know, that that is very much in the realm of what institutional horror is about. It's about unthinking, uncaring institutions that you can't bargain with. You can't negotiate with that are meant to destroy the individual. It's Mm -hmm. about the application of power from, you know, a force that really like isn't human in nature. And so just being in a bureaucracy, you see a lot of the decision-making that, that has, life and death implications, quite literally, because it's wars in Iraq and Afghanistan um, that can be really terrible and not make a lot of sense just because of how it is. And then I think, you know, another thing that's more directly related to the current occupant is just when you're around enough people at at high levels of power, you start realizing that, um, and and I was fortunate to work for people that this really does not apply to because they're the most humble, dedicated public servants, you can imagine. But you do see people that, um, you know, there's a bit of megalomania. And it's not surprising because, you know, you're talking, especially when you get to people seeking the presidency, you have to be a little bit insane to say, hey, I think I should be the most powerful person on the planet and make decisions that affect millions of lives every day. Like, I think I'm qualified for that. I mean, you've got to be a little bit, (laughs) Crazy. Um, and you can see where the, the, yeah, the overlap comes with um, with this film. And it, it also, you know, this, this movie is about a, a man who's in a, um, a very bizarre psychiatric hospital. And he comes to believe that he's the president of the United States. And really the genesis of that was this question of what happens if you put the most powerful person on the planet in the most powerless situation um, you know, you're in this institution, you are trapped there, um, you know, and that's really, I think, the kernel that, that launched the, the original ideas for this film.
0: Today's episode of the Nick Taylor Horror Show was brought to you by Rue Morgue Magazine. Subscribe to Rue Morgue for award-winning insight into the world and culture of horror, from books, movies, and comics to music, collectibles, and classics, featuring the latest film, book, comic book, music, game, toy releases, and more, delivered to your door. Guillermo del Toro called it the best damn magazine in the genre. Subscribe to Rue Morgue, the horror magazine of the 21st century, by visiting www.rue-morgue.com Today's episode of the Nick Taylor Horror Show is brought to you by Diabolic DVD. For almost 20 years, Diabolic DVD has been the source for horror, cult, and weird cinema to customers around the world. Diabolic offers a one stop shopping experience for all of your favorite labels, including Arrow, Synapse, Vinegar Syndrome, Severin, Mondo Macabro, Blue Underground, 88, and many more from all corners of the globe. So whether you're looking for the definitive version of Suspiria or trying to upgrade your crusty old D V D of Cannibal Holocaust, Diabolic is the owner-operated small business choice you've been craving. Shop online at diabolicdvd.com. That's D-I-A-B-O-L-I-K D V D.com. So I'm I'm particularly curious about how your your background in speech writing contributed to your screenwriting ability. Was there a easy transference of skills, or not
1: quite? Yes, um, I, I love the question because I, I get it from friends who're like that's and other people who're like that's such a strange transition from speech writing to screenwriting. Which I thought it might be when I first uh, did it, but what I realized is a lot of the skills overlap. Because so I was a speechwriter for I think five years and what you're doing that whole time is you're studying the spoken language the way it works the way it sounds you're you're putting words in someone else's voice mm-hmm. the cadence the rhythms of the language just the the whole way that it works in the spoken form which is very different than than written and all of that translates directly over into dialogue and when you're creating characters and you know, every character has their own way of talking and what they talk about which is You know, Mm speechwriting is the same thing. Like every person I've worked for, that's different. And you have to really put yourself in that mindset. Um, I think the other big transferable skill, I mean, beyond just writing, you know, good clean writing is good clean writing, regardless of what field you may be in. Um Mm -hmm. but the other one that's a little I haven't thought about is the foundation of any good speech writing um is really research, like Mm -hmm. lots and lots of research. You might find 10 items, and you only use the best of those, like one out of 10. And I think there's a lot, um, a lot of people probably don't, outside of the industry, probably don't understand how much research goes into screenplay, whether that's book research, internet research, or like going out and interviewing people and meeting people and touring facilities just to get ideas and inspiration um, to really understand, you know, what you're, what you're doing. Researching other films, too, to take to take bits and pieces from different places.
0: hmm yeah. So,
1: I mean, yeah, I mean to, to answer the question, it was a surprisingly easy transition. And it also been a hobby for a number of years. So I've read, I think about every book on screenwriting out there and tons of screenplays and et cetera, et cetera. So when I made the transition, I already had a base of knowledge built in.
0: Cool, cool. So I'd love to shift gears and go back to your first movie, Midnighters. Could you guys give a sense of how the movie came about? I mean, from initial idea to getting it wrapped, made, and sold to IFC Midnight?
2: Jude, you you want to take that one? Sure. Um, Yeah, we had um, Austin and moved to Los Angeles, and we decided that we wanted to make a movie together, um, so we were really you know, talking through what kind of film we wanted to make. And we decided to make a film that was, you know, a a bit of a throwback, like a bit of a Hitchcock type of film. We didn't want to have any, anything supernatural in it. Um, no big gag or gimmick. Um, we wanted it to be very like human driven. Mm -hmm. And, um, so we wanted to do, you know, the film, like really a film noir type of, type of movie. And, um, yeah, that's what we wound up doing. So we, we came up with this, the, the concept for it. It all takes place over New Year's Eve and it's about a couple and, and their marriage and they get involved in this accident and, you know, um, they wound up accidentally killing a guy on the, the way home from a New Year's Eve party and they discovered that the guy had a gun and a piece of paper in his, um, in his jacket. And so from there, it's all about like why he was coming to their house, why he had a gun what's it all about and so you know the whole thing takes place from new year's eve until through new year's day so it's all very very contained and um you know, at the same time i think very fast moving and yeah that was really how we how we came up with it I mean, i'd say it was a little more of a thriller like mm-hmm. a noir thriller than it was a horror movie
0: yeah
1: and um nick i would just add i think you're you're I know you're the the people who listen like to hear some about the the practical aspects and you know a real starting point we had with that film I think before we even came to like here's what the movie is and what it's about you know we started by drawing a box around what we could do from a production standpoint which was you know we knew that to make it so that it was makeable that we needed a limited cast we needed limited locations ideally it takes place in mostly one place mm-hmm. um, and and obviously only one to be genre um, and all just just very doable from practical standpoints um, Judah I, I don't know were there any other sort of boundaries that we put around ourselves
2: no I mean that was that was mostly it I mean we wanted it to be a very you know contained a contained thriller, um, and I think that's, we wanted to also, you know, look and feel as big as possible, like given those, you know, constraints, both physically and, and financially. So I think, I think we did that.
0: Cool. So, yeah, I mean, there's, um, it's, it's relatively commonplace for first time filmmakers to identify, okay, what are the assets that I have access to? And then essentially build and write mm-hmm. around that. And it sounds like largely that was, um, mm-hmm. is that what you guys did?
1: Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we, we, we knew, very much so. Yeah. We knew en- enough just, and, and there's a reason I think you see a lot of um, horror films, especially from people making the first movie, you see them. Like haunted houses and slashes right. in one place because the ease of production of that, and so you know that was definitely the starting point. Was like these these are our boundaries, yep. and this is our sandbox, and we have to play inside it. And then, like Jute said, just our sensibilities for that film is we wanted to really um, stick in more of the psychological realm and and that sort of throwback grounded in in the real world um, just for that film. So that's where we were sort of looking for ideas and throwing around a lot. And the um, the one that actually sort of started us down the road of the, the film was um, a news story that weirdly we had both read from, I mean, it's maybe 15 years old now. And it was about, I think she was a nurse, maybe down in Texas. She hit a guy, a homeless guy. Mm-hmm. He went halfway through the windshield. She went home, he's still alive. And he basically bled out for 24, 48 hours begging for help. And neither she nor her boyfriend called anyone to help the guy. Like they just had a complete mental breakdown. So, (laughs) you know, the movie ends up being a lot different. Um, Like it said, it's it's a guy. He's got a paper in his wallet and has their address on it. He has a gun and it's the unraveling of, well, why is he coming after them? But like, you know, that initial spark was from a, just a completely random source. Yeah. But it helped, it actually helped a lot to create a process that once we came up with that, we knew that we had certain limitations and that the whole script had to exist within those limitations.
0: Yeah. So yeah, it's it seemed...
1: I think it Sorry. Go on. I was to say it helps sometimes I think when you have because a screenplay is like wide open, you know, you could fly to the moon or to Mars. Right. If you don't have any boundaries on yourself, when you put boundaries, I think it actually can help you be more creative because you're trying to think, well, what's an interesting way of, of doing something like this? You know, that we, we, so you don't feel like you've seen it before, even though, you know, we've all seen lots of movies that are scary or thrillers that take place in a single location.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. It seems like it makes all the sense in the world. I mean, especially for it being your first film. So as soon as you guys had had the script and had the the locations and, and everything figured out, what was the next step in getting it produced and made and, and all of that? How did you guys get producers on board? How What were the steps required to get the movie made?
1: Uh, well, I think that on the producing side, I asked Jude if he'd produce it and he asked me if I'd produce <laughs> it and so we
2: decided to do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, we really produced the film ourselves. I mean, we did, we did everything on it, everything. Um, So, you know, it was really going hand in hand, trying to raise money, trying to get um, actors involved, um, crew involved, finding a director of photography, finding sound guys. I mean, from the catering to the locations, I mean, every single aspect of this was really just us, you know, busting our ass and doing it ourselves. Um, So it was a lot of work. Wow. Yeah, a lot of work. And, Insane and, you know, of work.
1: We we did go through um some of the, the normal Hollywood process and, and I think we just reached a point where it felt like if we kept going down that road, there was a good chance it could just never get made because the Hollywood process is about attaching a, a big recognizable actor that can then, you know, do foreign pre-sales and there's only a few dozen of those in the whole industry and it's just it's very difficult and um you know one of jude's friends gave him the advice of put a date on the calendar that you're going to start principal and just move forward as if it's going to happen and sort of will it into being Hmm. um and and i think that's part of what we did because i think for a lot of first-time directors um making a movie unless you have a strong track record it's going to be very difficult to get people in sort of the system properly to take a chance. And so, you know, if you want to make a movie, go make a movie. Um, And that's a lot easier said than done. Right. The the amount of work involved was really um, unfathomable, but, you know, I think technology now also allows people to do incredible things and it can take a long time, but you know, you can make really incredible looking films with, Without spending much money if you do it all yourself, which is a whole whole different ball game um, but you know it's possible technology allows a lot of stuff that wouldn't have been possible twenty years ago,
0: yeah well when it comes to first time filmmaking and getting the film made a lot one of the elements that a lot of um, a lot of would be directors shy away from is the raising money part and alston from what i understand you have a relatively corporate background did that help you in a business context when it came to raising the money and pitching producers and and like that or was it a whole new world
1: it, it helped on, um, it helped on the raising money. Not really, I've been pitching to angel investors. I went to business school, so I have an MBA. Mm-hmm. Um, so I approached it the way um, I had worked in the startup world a little bit, um, some early stage startups and taken some classes in it. So I approached it the way you would with, you know, an early stage startup where you're doing angel fundraising effectively. And so, uh, you know, I had a whole financial pitch deck and everything ultimately i think raising money for an independent film um you know is is people aren't going to invest based on the roi and other metrics because i think everyone knows that it's 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 a tough business and Mm -hmm. sometimes you get the lottery ticket sometimes you don't and people are going to invest in you and your idea and and whether they believe you can pull this off and um you know certainly for for that jute was the person that was most important because he had a background um editing and directing on you know giant television shows and so you know that that when you go to someone and say like here's our director and he can talk to uh the people that you're trying to raise money from that's just um you know you you can't do it without that really
0: right right so, Jude, your background in editing shows like *The Walking Dead* and *The Purge* TV series—it sounds like it sounds like that must have really come in handy when it came to producing the movie.
2: Yeah, I think it helped with, um, you know, just drumming up interest, getting actors involved, getting people to believe that it was, you know, a real movie that was going to be, um, that it was going to be good, it was going to be high quality. I think yeah. I think that um, my background definitely helped a lot, a lot with that.
0: So what was it like working within the uh, Blumhouse Into the Dark system? I mean, I've talked to a number of other directors who have produced or who have directed, rather, um, directed films for Into the Dark. And it sounds like it's a pretty fascinating framework that Blumhouse essentially plugs, plugs these directors into. Could you talk about the kind of lines that you had to color within and the overall structure of it and how, what were the, the um, what's the framework for working within into the dark?
2: Um, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a unique model because you're essentially they're doing one effectively like an indie feature horror film every month, but they're using like a television production model. So the vast majority of the crew rolls over from film to film to film and they take like a week off where they're dark um, Mm -hmm. while you do prep and everything. So it all, it all moves very quickly. Like it takes a while to ramp up. Like we didn't really, we we started working on the script, you know, I don't know, three, four months prior to pre-production, three months maybe. Mm -hmm. Um, But then not much was really happened in terms of, The casting and the crew and the crew and all all, and the actual prep of it until prep began and that was I want to say three and a half weeks before we started shooting so Mm -hmm. it's it's like a freight train that you you know you jump on and you travel for a while and then jump right back off so um, yeah it moves it moves very quickly and it's not like a television show where so much of it is consistent from the look to the actors to the sets I mean that all stays the same on a television mm-hmm. show or relatively the same um and it's not like a feature in that you have a ton of prep time to get the feature up and rolling um you know norm you know normal feature you might prep for months and so you kind of you you're sort of doing both and right we've got the resources of both, but it's also you know. It's also it's just it's fast. It's a lot of work, um, and it's a really, you know, it's a big support system because it is a studio, and they've got a name, so that draw that draws the attention of actors and crew members and all that kind of stuff. Um, but uh, you know, it's it's a lot of work. It's very very intense.
0: Yeah, I heard that t- television productions operate at a breakneck pace. Anybody I've ever spoken to who has a TV background says so it oh, it's nothing like uh, uh, like a film set on TV. You are it's just go 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 all day every day. It's super intense. Um, how long did it take to film the current occupant? 16 days. Oh, wow. Is that the, is that part of the the Blumhouse framework is everybody gets 16 days for end of the dark. Yeah. They
2: do 16 days. I think we had, I forget. I mean, I think it's maybe 14 days of prep Mm -hmm. if I recall correctly and 16 days of shooting. Um, so a, a normal, hour-long television show which is you know roughly 44 minutes of content on average the the normal shoot is a is eight days so this is double that Mm -hmm. and it's about exactly double the time so you're it is you're shooting on a television schedule but you know you're shooting a film like you're shooting it's got a beginning middle and end and if you miss something there's no do-overs you know we don't ever get to go back and like redo anything Mm -hmm.
0: So Sounds I'm really interested a, about in writer director collaborations. I mean, you guys have done a number of projects together, and you are brothers. Can you talk about your collaboration process? Sure, Austin, you go for it.
1: Um, I mean, it, it's different at different parts of the process, um, and I think I think that you know the, the good thing just to start at the the bird's eye level that we have is i think um you know we are brothers so we do do you have siblings
0: uh yeah Yeah. i do
1: yeah so you can probably imagine working with a sibling that you are going to have some arguments and some some squabbles shall we say (laughs) um i think the thing we're really fortunate with is that we never have those arguments over creative stuff um I, i really in in two feature films I cannot remember like something I'd consider a genuine creative difference. I mean, there's stuff that I might want to do that he disagrees with or vice versa, but like, I can't think of anything where it's like, I'm going to die on this hill and I'm so mad. It's like, it's like, okay, fine. Like, it's a subjective decision. Someone's got to make the call. I think that comes from just the fact that we have sort of a shared film language. I'm younger. um, So growing up, he made me or let me watch lots of horror movies that I probably should not have seen at the age that (laughs) I was. Um, Yeah, exactly. So, so I think that's just helpful because, you know, if we're discussing an idea or something, it's like, and I, if I say, Oh, you know, it's like such and such in that scene in this movie, and I can name something really specific and obscure, and he's going to know precisely what I'm talking about. And that, that can just help at every stage because, you know, you don't have to, explain yourself necessarily um so you know the the way the process has worked is we normally we've come up with an idea and then we've together broken um a good part of the story and certainly all the major er- elements you know the characters the different acts the main plot points um as well as like a lot of ideas and a mm-hmm. lot of details and maybe even in the case of this you know we had like a full Full on outline because that's part of what we had um, pitched as part of the part of just going to Blumhouse and trying to sell them on this uh, concept. Um, And then I go and do the first draft of the film and then of the script and then work with Jute on changes, um, implementing all his Mm -hmm. changes and everything. And that's, you know, that's sort of phase one, I think. And then, um, and and Jute, stop me if I'm, I'm missing something. And then on on set he can he can speak to it from his perspective um I, I feel like i'm i'm really lucky i get to sit on monitor and like watch the magic happen and, and watch just incredible stuff and if i have an idea on something or something doesn't feel like it's quite working you know, it's, it's the director set. So it's, it's his call and everything, but I know that I can go and voice that to him and he's going to listen. And sometimes he's going to overrule me. And sometimes he's going to say, that's a great idea. Um, But it's like, it's a really awesome opportunity as a writer to have a director who, you know, is always going to give a fair shake to your ideas, whether they're um, good, bad, ugly, somewhere in between.
0: Yeah. And I've heard from other um, brotherly directorial or director duos like the Pierce brothers who did, uh, the wretched, they said that there is, that if you have a production partner, it should be somebody you grew up with, or it should be a sibling because you need to be able to fight and then quickly recover, you know, not have an argument and then not talk to each other for two weeks, which is the case with most friends who are not, you know, terribly close, but close enough to uh-huh. collaborate but it sounds like the kind of brotherly background really helps when it comes to getting movies made, because obviously there will be conflicts, there will be different opinions, but the ability to be able to embrace a conflict, get through it and then move on is something that is, you know, unique to siblings. And it sounds like, you know, it, it partially contributes to the success of your collaboration is, would that be accurate?
2: Yeah, I would say that's definitely true. Cool.
0: Yeah, sure.
1: I, I think I would add that, you know, I, Anytime you're making a movie, it's like going to war, and so the question is, who do you want in the foxhole with you?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and even if it's someone you're going to have arguments with, like you know, you're going to be in a battle, and you know who do you want at your side? Who's the person you can just implicitly trust um, that's always going to have your back no matter what? And yeah, I mean, precisely what you said—it's—it's it's, it's hard. You—you know, you, you don't have many people like that. I don't think like childhood friends, siblings, you know, yeah, those are the people that you trust with your life. And you really, you really have to, cause that's just the nature of filmmaking.
0: Yeah. So everybody out there, write a screenplay with a sibling. <laughs> no, you can't trust anybody else. <laughs> so how did that's Blumhouse true. get involved or how did you guys, did you bring the project to Blumhouse? Did Blumhouse turn to you guys and say, Hey, we'd love to do something together
2: um yeah i directed the purge so i knew blumhouse through that and then um we knew about into the dark so i we had been talking to them for a little while about into the dark and um we had this idea you know we did a quick call and pitched them on the idea and then um they were interested so we went and did a, a much longer meeting like did like an hour hour and a half long a uh, pitch um i put together um a reel that was maybe five minutes worth of um select selected scenes and portions of movies that I thought captured the the tone of the film that I was going for um, you know some other institutional horror films mm-hmm. and um, yeah they were they were super into it and so um, yeah they, they, they offered us you know the opportunity to do to, to write and direct this movie great. And in
0: watching the movie, there's a lot of clear symbolism in it, I think, from a political perspective. But it it also feels like the kind of movie where you can project your own either beliefs or your own symbolic interpretations of certain Mm -hmm. things into it. So I'm wondering how – first of all, are there any specific – kind of social commentary takeaways that you do want audience members to take away from it. Um, and secondly, did you craft it to have a kind of universal appeal where people could be able to project their own interpretations into it?
2: Well, I would hope, I would hope part two um, is clear. Yeah. I mean, for sure. I wanted it to have, have like speak to the universal, you know, human Human drama and um, the, the the tendency of power to corrupt the mind, and I think um, I think that was a big part of it. Um, as far as the symbolism, um, I mean, yeah, there's there's so many pieces that are present in the film. Like there's so many little elements that are either symbolic or you know Easter eggs that were planted in there. I mean, we put so much in there um it's hard um uh, hard to distill that down to just like you know a, a one specific symbol or yeah. what that that means but you know i i think there's a lot a lot to be gleaned from every it's a very dense film mm-hmm. there's a lot a lot to every every aspect of it every frame every sound every every bit of the story yeah
1: and um you know i i think it, it is on on some level i guess it's it has political themes but as a starting point neither of us wanted to make a really purely explicitly political statement with Mm -hmm. the film just because i feel like i i think both of our sensibilities is that that good fiction really falls apart when you're trying to hit something on the nose and say you know i believe this and you should too it's just i think good films especially when you get into horror which are About like booking feelings, Um, you know, you don't you don't want to whack someone over the head too heavily with any sort of social commentary, and wanted to leave leave some questions open um, and and leave interpretation open. And and I feel like if we've done our job well, people will walk out of the movie and they're going to think about it, and maybe they're going to watch it again.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it does feel like the kind of movie that's built for multiple viewings because there's a lot of detail. There's a lot of things you could easily not notice the first go around. And then there's that sense of like, okay, what does that mean? And then, you know, you wrestle with it in your own head and then it's, all right, I got to I got to see this again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, what are you guys up to next? Um,
2: I have a we have a television series actually that um we've been developing. It's like a new it's a new uh genre. Of, of television frankly it's a very like um different kind of series than i think has ever been done before oh wow so, um, yeah we're really excited about it it has it has some sci-fi some horror some true crime uh it's a little bit of a blend but it's uh it's very much like a new new type of format
0: that sounds pretty cool okay well great we'll definitely be looking Thanks. out for that Well, guys, this was a whole lot of fun. Huge congratulations on the current occupant. Any parting wisdom for those aspiring filmmakers out there?
2: Go make a movie. Don't let anybody stop you. Just go and do it. Stop giving yourself excuses.
0: All right. Wise words. All right, guys. Thank you again.
2: Okay. All right. Thank you very much. Thanks.
0: all right here as always are some key takeaways from this conversation with julius and alston ramsey number one move forward as if Alston mentioned a golden production tactic that somebody gave him which was to put a hypothetical date on the calendar for principal photography and simply move forward as if that's when you will begin shooting. When making independent films, there are so many variables. So many that most directors get overwhelmed and feel the need for everything to be figured out before they can even begin thinking about a date at which they will begin shooting. What few people will tell you is that the best way to do this is to work the other way around. Come up with your ideal date and then back all of your production plans into it. There's real brilliance to this idea because it not only psychologically orients you towards shooting, which is very powerful in and of itself, but this tactic makes your project sound more real to the producers that you're pitching because you have an actual date. So pick a date and mark it on your calendar. Even if you have to reschedule it, it will be a starting point that can give you the momentum that you need. Number two. There's horror all around you. Take notice. Alston spent a lot of time working in politics as a speechwriter. And because of that, he brought a breadth of perspective and experience into the current occupant and its political undertones. His work history gave the movie an authenticity because it was partially based on his personal experiences, which is where some very rich horror concepts can come from. If you're an aspiring filmmaker who has a non-film related day job currently, take heart. Because the idea for your movie might be right in front of you. Waiting tables? It's been a while since there's been a good restaurant horror movie. Working in an office? Take a look at Belko Experiment, American Psycho, Mayhem, and technically Cabin in the Woods as well. Don't discount your current experiences as time wasted if you're not making movies yet. Dig deep into these experiences because they might just have the germ of a great horror concept in them. Number three, collaborate with a sibling or someone like a sibling. I've spoken to multiple filmmaking duos, and they're often childhood friends or siblings. When picking collaborators, it's critical to remember that you will inevitably get into conflicts with them. Therefore, having a strong rapport and the capacity to fight and rapidly recover is mission critical. Where it may not always be realistic to pick a sibling to make a movie with, as Alston said, pick someone who you would want in your foxhole, because making a movie is going to war. Therefore, it's important to have someone on board who will have your back when the going gets tough, because it inevitably does throughout the course of indie filmmaking. So pick your production partners accordingly, because when the chips are down, you'll need somebody who cares. Anyway, guys, thank you as always for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, it would mean the world to me if you shared it with your friends and family on social media. Don't forget to follow the show on Instagram at IamNickTaylor. That's Taylor, and on Twitter at the same handle. Don't forget to subscribe to the Nick Taylor Horror Show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere you listen.